0: Eight. Psalm 38. As you're turning to Psalm 38, just kind of a, a follow up, a touch on on something that Dave was talking about. The statisticians tell us that humans actually have a mental block that hinders them from comprehending exceptionally large numbers. And so when you get into the hundreds of millions and into the billions, you're talking about large numbers that that are hard to really process. And so when you want to really kind of come to grips with the lostness of India, 5% of the Indian population is Christian. So it's 1.3 billion people. That's 65 million Christians. So if you were to take the Christians out of India and make them their own country, they're the 22nd largest country in the world, the same size as France. Leaving over 1.2 billion people still living in that country, four times the size of the population of the United States of lost people. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in India. And I thank God that Sylvania Church is committed to work with an organization that's trying to spread the gospel in that very, very dark place. So amen for that. Psalm 38, beginning in verse one, a psalm of David for a memorial. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your burning anger for your arrows have sunk deep into me. And your hand has pressed down on me. And there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all of my desire is before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me in the light of my eyes. Even that has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my kinsmen stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction And they have devised treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. For I hope in you, O Lord, and you will answer, O Lord my God. For I have said, may they not rejoice over me, who when my foot slips would magnify themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin, but my enemies are vigorous and strong, and are, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. And those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord my God. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation." Let Let's pray together. Father, God, thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Father, God, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for its place in our lives. Father, thank you for the gracious gift that it is. And Father, in moments like these, when we come to your word and it challenges us in those times of unrepentant sin. May we examine ourselves, Father. Father, may you shine a bright light upon our hearts. Father, may you expose those sins and those idols that we cling to. Father, by your grace and for your glory and for our good, may we cast off our sin and pursue after the glory and righteousness of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So this morning, the the sermon is broken into two distinct parts The first distinct part of the sermon is a a call from David to the Lord. And he and he asks an unusual request. He says, do not rebuke me in your wrath. It's an interesting phrasing. It's a coupling, a parallel coupling in this first verse in the Hebrew text. Do not rebuke me in your wrath and do not chasten me in your burning anger that that language for. Burning anger can also be translated as in your, in your poison, if you will. Don't poison me, God. Rebuke me. Notice he's not asking God to not rebuke him at all. Now, hear that. There could be a whole sermon on that. We won't do that. But just as a quick freebie, he's not asking God to not rebuke him at all. We, we need the Lord's rebuke. None of us has reached perfectionism. God disciplines those that he loves, except we could run through a host of lists of verses that talk about God's interaction with his people and trying to correct the wrong word ways of his people. What we often do, if we're honest, is we try to get God to not rebuke us at all. It's not what he's asking here. God, don't rebuke me in your wrath. Amen. If you've read about the wrath of God recently in the text of scripture, don't want to be rebuked in that. Zero out of ten doctors recommend it. It's not something that you want to be a part of. Do not rebuke me in your wrath. Do not chasten me in your poison. It's not what I want. Now, why is David talking like this? Because in the first fourteen verses, He gives to us a picture of complete brokenness. David has come to acknowledge his sin... We don't know what sin this is related to. We don't have a good context, even in the subscript, to kind of land where this is in David's life. There's plenty of examples throughout the history of the Old Testament talking about the life of David that we could pull from. There's plenty of sins that we know that David committed. And I'm sure a host of others that were not written about throughout the history of David's life. We don't know what's going on in this context. But what we do know is that David is acknowledging that he... He's sinning against God. And he is deserving of being rebuked by God for his sin. And whatever is going on is severe enough that David is concerned about being rebuked by God in God's wrath. And David has reached a point because of the acknowledgement of his own sin that he is completely broken over his sin. And he gives us a little picture. He pulls the veil back into his own life and into his own mind. And he describes what living in his sin in an unrepentant state has done to him. And it's a picture of complete brokenness. So let's walk with David and see this. Let's consider the elements first. First. There is a desire for God's wrath not to fall on him. I would hope that these more than 11 years that we've been together. Those of you who've been here this whole time. Would know by now. I'm a really big fan of grace. Because. That's the essence of the gospel. Apart from God's grace, we have no hope. However, when you come to the place where you're a big fan of grace, you can get complacent. And you can start to presume on the grace of God. And the scripture warns off against that lots of times. Pharisees did it when they assumed that the grace of God was on them because they were physically descendant children of Abraham. Hey, we're good. We got Abraham as our father. That's presuming on God's grace. And Jesus threw them under the bus for that. God doesn't really care who your dad was or your granddad was or your great-great-great-granddad was. It's not concerned about that. David here, though he knows he's the chosen king, Though he knows he's in covenant relationship with God, though he knows that God Himself has set him apart for a great purpose, is genuinely concerned that his living in his sin might result in the wrath of God on his life. Do we take our sin that seriously? Or when we find ourselves living in our sin, do we just presume on the grace of God? Yeah, I know I'm reveling around in my sin, wallowing in it like a hog does his slop. But you know what? I prayed that prayer and God elected me and we go to our theology high tower place and we say, there's nothing that can do anything separate me from the grace of God. So we start quoting all of the unsafe verses to justify continuing to live in our sin. Not what David did. When David realized, man, I've just been walking like a dog back to his vomit, to my sin. Please, God, don't put your wrath on me. That's where David went. That's where David went. It sounds an awful lot like Paul in his self-examination passage. Examine yourself to see what? If you are in the faith. Well, why would I ever have any questions about whether I'm in the faith or not? If you constantly and continually and unrepentantly and in a self-justifying way walk and live in your knowing sin, you might not be in the faith. It's one of the most terrifying things a professor ever said to me. We had an entire seminar on the doctrine of sin. We were trying to understand how sin worked and what sin looked like and what sin did to us and how God relates to sin and what Christ did to alleviate sin through his work on the cross and all manner of things about that. And the statement that he made was, and I've said it here before and I say it again, every time we willingly and knowingly sin against the revealed will of God, we are declaring with our lives that we might not know Christ. Ouch. But don't think he was overstepping. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's precisely what Jesus says to the people who thought that they were great religious, spiritual people. They were presuming on the grace of God at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, did we not? Lord, Lord, did we not depart from me? Who? The workers of lawlessness. Those who keep living in their sin." David here in his brokenness over his sinful life and his sinful condition has a strong desire for God's wrath not to fall on him. And then he begins walking through the effects of sin on his life and friends. The greatest commandment, as Jesus said, is to love your Lord, your God, with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength, the full reality of what it means to be human, the physical side, the spiritual side, the the volitional or willful side, the action side, the way that we uh, relate to other people in the world. And here, David shows the the uh, the, the contrast to that, the inverse to that, the counter side to that. This is what sin does to the whole human person when we continue to walk. In, it in an unrepentant way. First, there are the physical effects of sin. Christian, hear me this morning. If you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that the indwelling presence of the spirit abides in you and you adventure off into a realm of walking freely in your sin without repentance and in a self-justifying way, it will begin to have physical consequences on your life. Look at what David says. Verse 3, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head. They're a burden too heavy for me to bear. Verse 5, my wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. Sin for the believer, long term exposure to and involvement in and participation and cooperation with the sinful ways of this world for the believer has genuine physical consequences and stressors on our lives. The emotional weight, the mental weight, the lying that we have to do to ourselves to to justify our actions begins to Weigh us down. We all know this, even if it's not directly related to sin. When we get concerned about something in our lives, something we genuinely should be concerned about, and we start having a hard time sleeping. And then that causes us to have a hard time being alert during the day, the next day, when we need to be attending to things. And then that usually leads to the eating habits and patterns getting thrown off, and, and we don't have the energy that we need to do some of the things that we need to do. And before you know it, you're just kinda in a funk. Physically speaking, and that's for things that we should genuinely be concerned about. If you try to match that with trying to figure out a way to to declare before the Lord that you are right before him while you know you're living wrong before him, the weight of that begins to have a physical expression. Next, David talks about the emotional effects of sin. Verse six through ten, I'm I'm bent over. I'm bowed down. I'm mourning all day. My loins, the inner place of my will and my desire is filled with burning. I'm benumbed. I am crushed. I groan. I am agitated in my heart. I'm sighing and it's not hidden. My heart throbs. Light has gone from my eyes. These are all Hebrew metaphors for a a bad emotional state, a bad emotional condition. The Holy Spirit doing His great work of kindness inside of the life of a believer, convicting us of our sin and driving us to an emotionally low state. Now, I'm going to say something this morning, and I've said it in the past, and it gets misconstrued, so I have to give like a bunch of disclaimers and asterisks before I say it so that people will know that... That I'm not saying the thing that you think you are about to hear me say. That's a horrible world that we live in. But I just don't want to have that lunch this week. I'm a very pro-mental health person. I I, I genuinely understand that sometimes people go through hard things. And people have difficulties that they face. And people have certain uh, psychological conditions. Sometimes those are fed by biochemical realities that are outside of their control. And people need help. Sometimes dealing with genuine emotional swings in their life. So when I say what I'm about to say, I'm not denying any of that. That's real. But, comma, but. There's a whole bunch of Christian people who want to give themselves some kind of a disorder, who want to take some kind of medicine, who want to go seek some kind of counseling, who all they really need is an old fashioned dosage of repentance because you're broken in your heart over the sin that you won't let go of. David was crushed by his sin. And what would we do in modern American evangelicalism most of the time? Well, won't you just go see a counselor or go take a pill? No, how about you repent of your sin? Man, I just feel so sad all the time. It's because you're rebelling against God. Nobody wants to say that anymore. That's a super hot take, unpopular opinion, by the way. We'll not achieve you a good grade in your church growth class to say what I just said. But friends, the reality of it is, is that sin grabs a hold of the heart. Sin drives us to a low emotional place. We are not whole as humans when we are separated from our God because of our sin. And for many of us, the tragedy of our emotional state is being driven by a lack of repentance. We are not seeking the face of God. And it did a number on David's emotional well-being. Third. There are relational effects of sin. This direction, between people, the Scripture makes it incredibly clear in a lot of places that you cannot have broken vertical relationship between you and God and maintain healthy horizontal relationships you and between other people cannot happen. And notice what it says in verse eleven. My loved ones. And my friends stand aloof from my plague. And my kinsmen stand afar off. Christians are supposed to forgive each other. Christians are supposed to hold each other accountable and call each other out on their sin. Christians are also supposed to be careful Walking closely in the lives of people who are unwilling to repent of their sin. That's what all the church discipline passages are about. The reason why you put somebody out is so that they don't stay in the tight knit closeness of the community and bring corruption to those who are trying to walk with the Lord. You're not supposed to have an association with those who call good evil and evil good habitually without repentance. They're not supposed to be your best friends. They're not supposed to be your closest buddies. And so when you start living a life of, of unimpeded, unrepentant sin as a believer. And you've had other believers come to you and call you out on it. Try to point out a better way. And you will not yield. Guess what? Your friends and your loved ones will stand aloof from your plague. Your sin will not only create a separation between you and your God, your sin will create a separation between you and those other people who are trying to also walk with that same God. Sin breaks down and destroys relationships. That's what it does. And David was recognizing this. He was experiencing this. And finally, there are serious mental effects of sin, most notably the loss of discernment. Obviously, you've lost your skill of discernment if you continue to walk in self-justified sin. Notice what it says here in verses 12 through 14. It Talks about those seeking his life. Laying traps for him. The implication is, is that he doesn't see that that's what they're doing. When you give over to the invitation of sin and someone else lays some more sin at your feet, hey, here's some more. If you have gotten into the habit of not fleeing away from that which is wicked and pursuing that which is righteous, when someone lays a snare for you to entrap you in more sin, your mind is clouded by the joy, the temporary joy. And a friend, hear me this morning. There's temporary joy to be found in sin. If it weren't enjoyable, no one would do it. Just remember that. The reason why so many people get caught up in sin is because there's some enjoyment to be found in it. If sin was always atrocious and never felt good and didn't give us some sort of either emotional, mental or physical or a combination of all of those type of buzz, we never would do it. But it brings some version of delight to our temporary senses. And so somebody sets a snare of sin in front of you. Hey, don't you want some of that too? Yeah, actually, I think I do. It'll go great with this plate of other stuff that I've been filling up over here on this side. This is, oh, oh, look what they have for me over here. It's like a trail of of breadcrumbs all the way back to the city of Man. Jesus, I'm going to abandon this incredibly great feast banquet table you prepared for me. This is nothing compared to these leftover chewed up pieces of garbage that I'm going to walk after and go back to in the city of man. But we find some sort of delight in it and, and the, the mental discernment starts to go away. Notice David says of himself in 13 and 14 in this regard, I'm like a deaf man. I don't hear anything. In the gospel, one of the metaphors is what? That the deaf man can now hear. The mute man can now speak. Yes, I'm like a deaf man who doesn't hear. He's gone back to his pre... I'm not saying he lost his salvation. I'm going to get so many lunches off this sermon. I'm not saying he lost his salvation. But his mental awareness of walking with the spirit rightly has carried him to a state that resembles his pre-salvation, his pre-gospel experience. I'm like a deaf man again. I don't hear right. I, I don't hear like I should. I'm like a mute man. I don't speak truth like I should. I have no arguments in my mouth. I have no defense against these temptations that are coming my way. This is what reveling in the delight of sin does. It clouds the mind. And, da- friends, David is completely broken here. This first half, I don't know what the inserted in, uh, you know, fake italics title of the chapter is for you in your copy of God's Word. Mine is the prayer of the suffering penitent. And, no kidding, the first half of this psalm, good gracious. David is overwhelmingly broken because of his sin. He has come to the realization that every aspect of his life has now been derailed and thrown off course. Because he was unwilling to turn away from sin and be repentant. His relationships are broken His relationship with God is broken. His physical health is failing. His emotional health is failing. His mental health is failing. Everything in his life is caving in on itself because of his sin. Now, the warning of Scripture is don't let it get there. Kill sin before it kills you. Start out on the offensive. Cooperate in the means of grace. Surround yourself with people who hold you accountable. Abandon and avoid all of the opportunities to pursue after wickedness. And instead pursue righteousness. That's the call of scripture. In the Proverbs, wisdom calls across the street to the foolish man. Come over here instead of on the side of the street that you're on. Get away from it before you get into it. That's the call of scripture. But once you're in it. And we all get in it from time to time. Don't let it go this far. Don't let it go this far. There's a possibility, this is me being speculative, that this could be another repentant psalm of David's time with Bathsheba because he went that go, He let that go way too far. And it went for a long time. So what's the hope here then? Because we know the scripture doesn't leave us hanging like this. When we find ourselves completely broken by our own sinful rebellion, yet we know that the God, our, our God is a covenant-keeping, covenant-making, covenant-sealing, promise-holding God. Where's the hope? 14 through 22. 15 through 22, excuse me. For I hope in you all. Oh, Lord, my hope, David's hope, your hope, when we get to this place of losing the battle against our sin is to hope in the Lord. It's easy to say and it's hard to do. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. Because, friends, we live in a delayed Gratification, reality in our spiritual life. We live in the what the theologians call the already not yet. I'm already in Christ, but I haven't yet realized the full glory of being in Christ. I'm still having to wage war against my flesh. And the journey toward holiness, hear me this morning, this is what makes this battle so hard. I'm going to let you know a little secret of why it's so hard. The journey toward holiness is usually marked by suffering. The journey toward sin is usually marked by temporary delight. And it's much easier to pursue the delightful things than it is to walk the long path of suffering. Now, at the end of that long path of suffering are delights unimaginable. That's the not yet part. And we get to taste a little bit of those along the way in the path of suffering. But we have to wage war against our flesh. And that's filled with suffering. Whereas if I yield to the temptations of this world, I get temporary delight. Nothing I have to wage war with. And friends, that makes this very difficult. It's very easy to say, I will hope in the Lord. It's very hard to walk in it. So hear me this morning. When I say this, I'm saying it as a dead man saying it to other dead men. It's really easy to just stand up here and say, just trust in the Lord. Mm. And then that snare gets dropped and you're like, oh, pretty thing. And you go chase it. Squirrel. We had this kid all those years ago when I worked youth ministry. Super distracted, like classic for real, not make believe ADHD. And he was a profound young man. He really was. And he would be in the middle of sharing some great point about the Lord. And you'd be talking about stuff and doing a Bible study. And I kid you not, he would see out of the window a squirrel. And he'd be, and then Jesus and a squirrel, you know, and that's what he would do. And that's how we are in this attempting to hope in the Lord versus to return to our sin. Where Hey, there's a future resurrection. There's a hope of glory. There's a clothing of righteousness. There's a crown of glory to be had. There's a crown of life. There's a, whoa, look at this great sin that I could be involved in. That'll make me feel good, like right? Right now. And that's what we do. Easy to say. Hard to live in. It's hard to live in. Notice though. In this. Longing to hope in the Lord. David also has a desire. To not be crushed. By his enemies. He doesn't want. The broken world. To rejoice over his foot. Slipping. Slipping. Time after time, moment after moment, year after year, for hundreds of years now, longer, but definitely a lot in the age of modern, immediate information technology. You read story after story after story of fallen Christian greats. Somebody gets hung up in some sin. And rather than just coming clean, hey, I did this thing. They pull a King David and they try to hide it and they try to cover it up and they try to conceal it. They do all the stuff from the first 14 verses that we've seen here, rather than just doing what the scripture says and repenting. You know, there have been some great fallen leaders of the church Who returned to be even greater leaders after the fact. Why? Because they just repented. And the church just forgave them. And the world doesn't have anything crazy to say about that. Because that's the gospel. But what happens when people hide their sin. And they hide their sin. And they hide their sin. And then the sin gets exposed. And they try to justify their sin. And they try to justify their sin. Oh, no. Your enemy rejoices over you. And David said, I don't want my enemies to rejoice over me. I don't want my life to be so marked by hidden sinning that when it comes to light, my enemies laugh and mock me, which in turns means they are laughing and mocking my God. David was not only worried about his outward appearance to the world. He was worried about what his outward appearance to the world would do to the name of the Most High God. My hope is in you, Lord, and I do not want to be crushed under the foot of my enemies. And so what course of action does David take? Friends, hear this this morning. It's a primer for how it's supposed to go. What action does David take? My action is to confess my sin and return to what is good. 18. I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. My enemies are vigorous and are strong, they hate me wrongfully. Those who repay my uh, repay evil for good and oppose me. Why? Because I follow what is good. So David is making a deep switch here. Deep transition. In the same moment of his genuine heartfelt confession. Listen to this friend. Hear me this morning because the worst abuse that some Christians take when they're coming out of their sin is from themselves. Oh, God can't use me anymore. Look at these awful things that I've done. God God can't use you because of the awful things you've done? Well, what do you think it was like before you accepted Christ in the first place? Were you perfect? You just need a little Jesus juice on top to kind of get you over the edge? like, what, what? God couldn't use you then either because you were a sinner. But you think... It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Oh, God can't use me. Too much sin. Really? Then how did he save you? Was there not quite as much sin there at that time? And you got your sin got worse after you got saved? Like It's the most insane thing of, of thinking I've ever experienced in the Christian life. No. Do you know what David did when he reached heartfelt confession of his sin? He immediately went back to doing that which was right. Because he was standing in the life of God. I've been living life in my own power, and that's why I've made a train wreck of it. I'm abandoning my train wreck. I'm repenting of my train wreck. I'm confessing my sin. I'm turning away from the ridiculousness that my life was without the empowerment of God. And I'm coming back under the grace of God, dwelling in His covenant reality, and pursuing all that He says is good. You cannot do one without the other. There is no neutral confession of sin. We don't go back to the city of man and start eating the garbage that was there and go, oh, this is bad and wrong. Let me come stand in the middle, somewhere between these two kingdoms. You're either feasting in the city of man or you're feasting in the city of God. There is no in between. And So David gave us a course of action. Confess your sin and pursue what is good. Both of them, not one or the other. There are some people who confess their sin and don't pursue what is good. You will immediately go back to your sin. There's some people who start pursuing what is good without confessing their sin. You are living in hypocrisy. You haven't pursued the good yet. You have to do both. You have to confess your sin and pursue what is good. And, friends, the beautiful thing about God's grace is that in that very exact moment that you have genuine, true, heartfelt confession and an openness to follow the Spirit to pursue what is good, your relational standing before God reflects your justified standing before God. You are seated at His table as a welcome guest where you always should have been in the first place. You're a child. And you'll always be his child. You're just a wayward child. When you're living that life. And he welcomes you back. With open arms. Like the father did his prodigal son. It's a beautiful thing. And then notice at the end here. As we close. When you've been living in sin this way. In an unrepentant way. A broken way. And you. Begin clinging to hope in the Lord once again. Notice the cry to God is not to forsake, but deliver. And friends, hear me this morning. This is one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. Notice his cry, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me. Haste to help me, O Lord. Notice he doesn't say, O Lord, of my salvation. O oh, Lord, my salvation. He's equating his salvation with the divine being himself. I have no salvation apart from who God is. And notice this, the cry to not forsake, to not leave. Greatest promises in Scripture. What does God say to those who are truly in covenant relationship with Him? Even when they're wayward and even when they go sideways and even when they walk away, even when they pursue the things of this world they should not, even when they live extended periods of time in unrepentant sin and great brokenness has to fall on them. What is the testimony of God to His people? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, we do not know the weight of beauty that lives in that promise. That story of the prodigal son, we've read it too many times and we're too familiar with it. The child of the home living in the glory of the estate essentially looks at his father and says, you are dead to me. When he asked for his inheritance, that's what he was saying to him. I want the resources and blessing I would get if you were dead. And then he takes all of that great wealth that his father gives to him as if he were declaring his dad to be dead. And he goes and squanders it in the city of man. And when it runs out... What do you know? So do his friends and his physical well-being and his mental well-being and his emotional well-being. Everything that happened to David. Was it not better for me in my father's house, even if I were a slave there? Maybe he'll let me come work for him. So he picks himself up out of the pigsty. And he goes back with brokenness and humility to his father's house. And his father, seeing him far off, walking on the road, runs to him. How many of us would have done that? Let's be real for a minute. Parents in class 101. How many of us would have done that? Now, let's be real. We just stayed up on that porch tapping that foot. Mm I see him coming. That's right. Mm -hmm. I'll make him work for it. That's what we would have done. He ran to him, embraced him. His son tried to repent and the father wouldn't even let him. He said, my son, who was dead. Remember, he said the dad was dead. No, 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 no. I was never dead. My son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost is now found. Slaughter and throw a celebration for my child who has returned. That's how God treats. He never leaves us. Never forsakes us. No matter how in burdened in sin we become when the spirit breaks us and we repent and we turn to god he welcomes his children home Whew. jesus christ is not only our brokenness over our sin Because of the abiding presence of the spirit he gives to convict us of our sin. But he is also our only hope of restoration to the father when we sin. For if any of us sins, in closing from John, if any of us sins. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And friends, the beautiful thing about that passage in John, there's not a footnote that says you get this many tries at that and it's over. It's an open ended promise. Amen. That's pretty good. Father God, thank you. Thank you that when we wretchedly abandon the joy of salvation that you give us, you do not leave us nor forsake us. You run to us. You forgive us. You heal us. You cleanse us. You celebrate Our brokenness. And you make us whole. As only you can. Father God forgive us. When we neglect so great a salvation. When we find the snares and the trappings and the charms of this world. More enticing than a father who loves us that way. Forgive us. Father, this morning, if there's anyone here living in deep, hidden, unrepentant sin, Father, bring them to this kind of brokenness today. And also bring them to this kind of restoration. That they may know the joy of the Lord and the hope of Christ and the promised presence of the Holy Spirit. Triune God, in your name we pray it. Amen. I invite you to stand.